The Nature of Things, Book One, Matter and Void. Life stirring Venus, mother of Anus and of Rome, pleasure of men and gods, you make all things beneath the dome of sliding constellations teem. You throng the fruited earth and the ship freighted sea, for every species comes to birth conceived through you and rises forth and gazes on the light. The winds flee from you, goddess, your arrival puts to flight the clouds of heaven. For you, the crafty earth contrives sweet flowers. For you, the oceans laugh, the skies grow peaceful after showers, awash with light. For soon as morning wears the face of spring, and the west wind is free and freshens, warm and quickening, Airy tribe of birds, O holy one, is first to start, heralding your approach, struck your power through the heart. Then beasts, the wild and tame alike, go romping over the lush pasture land and swim across the river's headlong rush. So eagerly does each pant after you, so do they heed, caught in the chains of love and follow you wherever you lead. All through the seas and mountains, torrents, leafy-roofed abodes, of birds and greening meadows, your delicious yearning goads, the breast of every new creature, and you urge all things you find, lustily to get new generations of their kind. Because alone you steer the nature of things upon its course, and nothing can arise without you on light's shining shores, and nothing glad or lovely can be fashioned, I invite. You, goddess, stand beside me, be my partner as I write. The nature of things, these verses, I am striving to set down. Pomenius, my friend, your favorite, whom you would crown with every honor and with everlasting accolades, more reason to endow my words with grace that never fades. Meanwhile, holy one, both on dry land and on the deep, Make the mad machinery of war drift off to sleep. For only you can favor mortal men with peace, since Mars, mighty in arms, who oversees the wicked works of wars, conquered by love's everlasting wound, so often lies upon your lap and gazing upwards, feasts his greedy eyes on love, his mouth agape at you, famed goddess. As he tips back his shapely neck, his breath hovering at your lips, and as he leans upon your holy body, and you reach your arms around him, lady, sweet talk him with honeyed speech, pleading for a quiet peace. For Romans, this I ask, for I cannot with easy mind perform my chosen task, nor can the noble scion of the Memai fail to heed the call to duty when our land is in her hour of need. For Godhead by its nature must enjoy eternal life, in utmost peace removed from us and far from mortal strife, apart from any suffering, apart from any danger, powerful of itself, not needing us and both a stranger, to our attempts to win it over and untouched by anger. For what's to come, open your ears, apply keen intellect, far from cares, to true philosophy lest you reject out of hands the gifts that I've assembled for your sake, before you've fully grasped them. 
For now I begin to make my discourse on the lofty law of gods in heaven above, and shall reveal the building blocks all things are fashioned of, nature's prime particles from which she nourishes and grows all things and into which once more she makes them decompose. We turn them in philosophy according to our needs, matter, atom, generative bodies, elements, and seeds, and first beginnings since it is from these that all proceeds. When human life lay on the ground, obscenely in full view, prostrate, crushed beneath the weight of superstition, who stretched down her head from heaven's realms and with her ghastly gaze, leaned over mortal men, the first among them who dared raise, his human eyes to her was Greek, the first man to withstand her. Neither the myths of gods nor nightly bolts nor threatening thunder of heaven hindered him, but rather all the more they fired his mind's courage, so that he was the first man who desired to break the close barred gates of nature down. The vital force of his intelligence prevailed, and he advanced his course far past the blazing bulwarks of the world, and roamed the whole immeasurable cosmos in his mind and in his soul. In triumph he returns to us and brings us back this prize, to know what things can come about and what cannot arise, and what law limits the power of each and deep-set boundary stone. Therefore it is the turn of superstition to lie prone, trod underfoot while by his victory we reach the heavens. One thing I am concerned about, you might, as you commence philosophy, decide you see impiety therein, and the path you enter is the avenue to sin. More often, on the contrary, it is religion breeds wickedness, and that has given rise to wrongful deeds, as when the leaders of the Greeks those peerless peers defiled the virgin's altar with the blood of Agamemnon's child, Iphigenia, as soon as they bound the fillet round her hair, so that its ends streamed down her cheeks, the girl became aware that waiting at the temple for her there would be no groom. Instead, she saw her father with a countenance of gloom, attended by the priests who kept the blade well hid. The sight of people shedding tears to see her froze her tongue with fright. She sank to the ground upon her knees. It did not mean a thing for the princess now that she had been the first to give the king the name of father. No, for shaking, the poor girl was carried by the hands of men up to the altar. Not that she married with solemn ceremony to the accompanying strain of loud sung bridal hymns, but as a maiden, pure of stain, to be impurely slaughtered at the age when she should wed, sorrowful sacrifice slain at her father's hand instead. All this for fair and favorable winds to sail the fleet along, so potent was religion in persuading to do wrong. Sooner or later you will seek to break away from me, won over by doomsayer prophets. They can certainly conjure up for you enough of nightmares to capsize life's order and churn all your fortunes with anxieties. No wonder. For if men saw that there was an end in sight to trials and tribulations, they would find the power to fight against the superstitions and the threats of priests. 
But now they have no power to resist, no way to reason how. For after death there looms the dread of punishment for the whole of eternity. Since we don't know the nature of the soul, is the soul born, or does it enter us at our first breath? And does it die with us? And is it broken down at death? Or does it haunt the murk of Orcus and his vasty halls? Does it slither by some magic into other animals? So Aeneas declares, the first among us to bring down from fair Mount Helicon an evergreen and leafy crown, thus making his name famous throughout all of Italy. Yet even so, he sets forth in his deathless poetry that realms of Acheron exist. There really is a hell. And there we neither in the flesh nor in the spirit dwell, but rather something wraith-like of us lingers wan and weird. And it is from these same infernal regions there appeared the shade of never-fading Homer, who, the poet sings, began to shed salt tears and to unfold the nature of things. Therefore, we must consider well celestial happenings, and by what principle the sun and moon run on their courses, and all phenomena upon the earth and governing forces. And then especially we must nose into, with sharp wits, what makes up the soul and what the nature of it is. And what do we meet when we are awake, delirious with fever, that terrifies the mind, or when we are sepulchred in slumber, so that we think we see and hear such persons face to face, who have encountered death and whose bones lie on earth's embrace? Nor does it fail me that discoveries, obscure and dark, of Greeks are difficult to shed much light on with a spark of Latin poetry, chiefly since I must coin much new terminology, because of our tongue's dearth and due to the novelty of subject matter. And yet to this end, your excellence and my sweet hope to win you as a friend, persuade me to tackle any task and take up any toil. And in the still small hours, make me burn the midnight oil as I seek the right words and the right poetry to light brilliant lanterns for your mind, so that at last you might peer deep into the recesses of things once recondite. This dread, these shadows of the mind, must thus be swept away, not by rays of the sun, nor by the brilliant beams of day, but by observing nature and her laws. And this will lay the warp out for us, her first principle, that nothing is brought forth by any supernatural power out of naught. For certainly all men are in the clutches of a dread, beholding many things take place in heaven overhead, or here on earth whose causes they can't fathom, they assign the explanation for these happenings to powers divine. Nothing can be made from nothing, once we see that so, already we are on the way to what we want to know. What can things be fashioned from, and how is it, without the machinations of the gods, all things can come about? For if things were created out of nothing, any breed could be born from any other. Nothing would require a seed. People could pop out of the sea, the scaly tribes arise out of the earth, and winged birds could hatch right from the skies. 
born willy-nilly, every animal, both wild and tame, would inhabit cultivated land and wilderness the same. The same tree would not always grow the same fruit. What might bear an apple one time might, the next, produce a quince or pear. Since there would be no generating particles, then neither would certain things arise from only a certain kind of mother. But since, in fact, each species rises from specific seeds, each thing springs from the source that has the matter that it needs, the primary particles, and comes into the boundaries of light. And that's the reason every thing cannot give rise to every other thing, because there is a separate power in distinct things. For why else do we see the roses flower in spring, rain ripen in the heat, and under autumn's sway, the grapes pour forth, if not because each in its proper day, when the seeds come together, opens out into its birth, when re reasonable weather is at hand, and when the teeming earth brings tender growth forth safely onto the shores of light. It's clear that if things came from nothing, they would suddenly appear at random intervals and at the wrong time of the year. For there would be no basic particles of generation to be hindered from a fruitful meeting in a hostile season. Nor in turn would things need time to grow for congregation of basic particles if things could grow up out of nothing. For babes would shoot up into youths in a flash and groves would spring suddenly leaping from the earth. But clearly this is not what happens. All things grow little by little as they ought, from a certain seed, preserving their own species as they go. So each thing needs its own kind of material to grow. Consider that without a certain season of rain, the earth could not put forth her gladdening fruits, nor could creatures give birth to young or stay alive deprived of their food. It makes more sense, therefore, to think that many things have common elements, as words share letters, rather than assume that anything can exist without them. Again, why cannot nature make a man so large that he could wade across the deep to other lands, mighty enough to wrench apart great mountains with his hands, and outlive generations, unless everything consists of certain matter, and this matter limits what exists. We must therefore confess that nothing can emerge from nothing. But everything created needs a seed from which to cast into the gentle breezes of the air. Another thing, because we see tilth, is more fruitful than untended land, and gives back better harvest cultivated by our hand. It's plain that in the ground the elements of things are rife. Since turning rich clods with the plow, we stir them into life. If no such elements existed, then you'd see the soil would grow a richer crop, all on its own, without our toil. Add that nature does not render anything to naught, but she instead reduces everything she has wrought back to its elemental particles again. For say, that anything in all its parts were subject to decay, and snatched of a sudden from our sight, each thing would pass away, 
for there would be no need of any force to make a chink between component parts and to unfasten link from link. But since each thing is made from atoms, those seeds that abide forever, until it meets a force that's able to divide it with a blow, or that can enter it where there is void, then nature won't allow it to be openly destroyed. Besides, if age consumes all the material outright, of everything the lapse of time has taken from our sight, then out of what does Venus bring the creatures, breed by breed, back to the light of life? And what does the crafty earth feed them on and make them grow, each kind according to its need? What feeds the sources of the ocean, both those fountains found below its surface and the rivers flowing overground, or the aether the stars graze upon? For all that can decay, devoured by the ages, should by now have passed away. But if in all the span of days gone by something has stayed, the stuff that makes the universe with which it is remade, these particles perforce are indestructible. Therefore, nothing can be reduced to nothing, as I said before. Again, one cause would send all things wholesale to their demise. If they weren't knit together loosely or tightly from the ties of everlasting matter, for the mere tap of a feather would be sufficient to destroy such things not put together from particles of eternal substance. There would be no call for a certain force to fray the bonds of their material. But as it is, since elements are of eternal stuff, linked with bonds of different strengths, unless a strong enough force encounter it, a thing stays safely as it was. Therefore nothing turns to nothing. All things decompose back to the elemental particles from which they rose.